But for societies that um, societies that reject art or for which art is um, uh, suppressed, then those societies really are kind of dying from the inside out. I think it's quite difficult to strip art from society. Um, it typically requires a sort of a totalitarian regime um, led by some sort of narcissistic, um, malevolent despot like uh, Kim Jong-il or maybe Hitler or something like that. So it's not easy to do, but it can be done. It can be forced upon people. The following is a conversation with Marcus Rose. Marcus is an artist, an art collector, an amateur astronomer, and he also owns his own jewellery business. On the podcast, we talk about Marcus's experience in each of these fields. If you like this conversation, review it with five stars on Apple Podcasts, follow on Spotify, or follow me on Instagram at Recorded Time Podcast. I hope you enjoy the episode. Yeah, sending this one out to my man Killer B. And uh, my parents were Russian-French, um, so there was uh, naturally some fireworks at home, as you can imagine. Um, I studied uh, law and commerce um, and practised very briefly as a lawyer, just as an article clerk. Um, and I was somewhat shocked when people came um, with their problems to me. Uh, I thought, why are you... Why, why are you giving, explaining all your problems? I don't want, I've got problems of my own. And, I, and it seemed to me that uh, I was in the wrong kind of business. And you'd imagine that I should have realised that a lot sooner. But nonetheless, um, I moved on. I was much more attracted to the idea of um, discovery and creation. And, uh, uh, and business beckoned. So um, uh, one thing led to another. I tried a few things and... Um, then I, I decided to look at the family tree, which the history rather, and um, my grandfather in France was a uh, um, a, a watchmaker and a jeweller, and uh, so I re-established the business in Australia, um, and um, in a sense uh, I had to re-establish it because it had been disrupted by World War Two, uh, and uh, uh, but it did force me to. Um, it forced me uh, to start. Uh, well, I guess the, the process of starting a business is one is quite a creative one. Actually, what I discovered, I take my hat off to everybody that runs a small business. There, there's no there's no real um, um, instruction manual for starting a business. Um, you have to be quite creative and responsive to events, and you have to be able to pivot and so on. And I designed a brand, and I des- and I, I had a concept of bringing quality fine jewellery to uh, to Melbourne. And uh, at the time, actually, Melbourne was full of antique and reproductive, uh, reproduction jewellery and that sort of thing. And so um, um, I wanted to do something rather contemporary. And so uh, I was suddenly I sort of reinvented myself as a, a jewellery designer at one level. Um, and uh, the business fortunately, um, fortunately worked, partly due to actually a change in the tax code. Um, 
uh, there were tax advantages for selling secondhand jewellery that weren't uh, weren't available to new and in any event they changed that and uh, we're off and running. Uh, but that was purely serendipitous. And again, anybody in business would know that you, have, you grow to rely on these unexpected uh, um, happy occurrences to succeed. So yes, I was accidentally successful, as I have been in many things, I suppose, in life. But, uh, and I pursued that for a number of decades, I'd have to say. But I continued always uh, in the background uh, with my uh, um, interests in the creative arts because... Uh, um, because my mother was an artist, uh, quite an accomplished artist. Um, I'd come home from school and uh, um, she'd be there with a huge canvas and playing uh, playing Stravinsky or something. She even had some people there with uh, sometimes musical instruments accompanying her while she did extravagant uh, strokes on on canvas on her canvas, and she would have a she'd have a teacher with her and so on. It was all very, it was a very happening thing. And uh, so I was influenced by her um, uh, to maintain, uh, yes, and, and it helped me man- maintain my interest in the arts as well. So uh, I, um, I, I was always drawing and uh, I moved on to, to graphic art, screen printing, uh, painting and so on, yeah. So did starting a business scratch the same itch of creativity that you get out of painting or out of doing something more creative? Well, uh, it, it sort of taps into, into different sides of it because you're, um, you've always got a, an agenda, of course, in business, which is to optimise and to meet people's, uh, uh, to sort of meet the market and try and further the interests of your business. And if your business has a certain style or ethos, you have to be true to that. But within that, uh, you've got the opportunity to develop a lot of advertising material. Uh, there's ways of, you, you design um, the whole experience for customers, I suppose. And then, as I said, you've got, you've got all these decisions which require you to be quite creative. Um, so, but it's, different, it's a different type of creativity. And uh, although I enjoyed it, and of course with success, you tend to enjoy things more so, um, it didn't really, uh, didn't scratch everywhere I needed to scratch. <laughs> so uh, yes, I kept scratching um, with the, uh, you know, just the, that's right, the traditional creative arts, um, which I really, uh, um, it was my sort of uh, alter ego, I guess. Mm. And do you feel, you mentioned that you started off as a lawyer and in my experience, lawyers often have a interest in art. Would you agree with that? Uh, well, very often you go into their sort of uh, uh, trophy uh, um, offices and you do see art. I don't know whether it's not driven by uh, desire, whether there's tax advantages in it, I'm not sure. Uh, but lawyers, yes, uh, they do have an interest in art, certainly. Um, most of the prof- uh, successful professionals do. Um, um, but I can't. I, I don't know whether they've got a particular interest or not. Yeah, I couldn't say really. Yeah. How often would you be drawing when you were uh, drawing when you were a bit younger, or, um, or do you draw today as well? Uh, I do draw today uh, digitally. Uh, I've got a, um, a sort of Wacom tablet, and I've got a, an iPad Pro, and I draw something most days, um, certainly. And uh, when I was young, I. Uh, it, was, it was sort of in, in, depending on how much time and inclination I had, uh, it would go in bursts, I suppose. Um, but it, there, were t- there were sort of in, there were um, inflection points that really created um, more interest for me. 
Um, when I moved from photography, I suppose, into more graphic arts, um, I loved the sort of the flat colour you could get from screen printing, printing for, for, uh, uh, for example. And, um, and of course, with, uh, with, with computers, uh, with digital manipulation and so on, there was a whole new landscape that I could, uh, I could investigate and discover. And, uh, I mean, that's been a lovely and wonderful journey, I must say. And I would encourage any, any artist to, to look at all of the tools at their disposal uh, that, that are available to them today, uh, and uh, including all the digital, uh, digital tools and, uh, um, and systems that are out there for artists to, to express themselves. I mean, there, there, are wonderful, uh, there are wonderful things you can do, manipulating images and creating images and so on. Do you think drawing is the most important skill for an artist of any discipline to have, just because of how all-encompassing it is? Uh, look, I think it's very important to to draw something probably every day if you can. Uh, it certainly helps, yes. Uh, it's a great foundation. Um, it's surprising how many artists don't actually uh, really develop a technical skill. Mm. Uh, but, uh, yes, I'd agree with that, certainly. Because mm. my inclination has always been that in order to break the rules stylistically, you need to have an understanding of what those rules are in the first place. Um, and I think sort mm -hmm. of, I mean, if you look at Picasso's career, for example, you know, by the age of 18, he could paint pretty much photorealistically and he was in a much better position, I think, uh, to sort of accelerate those stylistic changes, which is pretty much what he did yeah, every decade. Um, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, uh, it helps in order to understand um, really what's possible uh, on a canvas or a piece of paper, do you have to really try and conceptualise and really move into it with your own skill set? And drawing is a fun fundamental uh, uh, beginning point for that. Of course, you build upon those skills with however you however you may with painting skills and so on. But uh, yes, I agree completely. I mean, you need to be able. It's it's really um, very very more than useful. It can be critical really to be able to draw and. Uh, understand the form and, and you develop, it's funny how the skill develops, you, you get a spatial uh, skill, you become better at understanding form and space and proportion. So it's not just the actual act of drawing, it's the, it's the seeing that you develop. Mm. Um, so mm. It's almost like going to the gym for an artist, I feel. Yeah, the drawing. that's absolutely right. Tell me if you agree with this. I feel we're at a point uh, in human history that is particularly ripe for artistic exploration and specifically the interaction between humans and technology, I feel, is going to be one of the most interesting subjects moving forward. Uh, and it's fascinating in part because the medium and the subject are so intertwined. Your work's a perfect example of this. Your subject, as far as I can tell, is the technological age uh, and your creative process is dependent on technology, as is mine in many respects. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I, uh, I, I think that uh, I think it's very important to have technical competency generally uh, in, in art, certainly understanding your materials and understanding how you can manipulate them and what you can produce with them. And of course, it helps for any individual to be to, to develop their unique signature uh, in, in, in the method in which they, they adopt to, in using those materials. Um, and there are so many techniques, in uh, that have d that are available to the digital artist, so uh, much much it's the same truism there as it is in the more tr traditional forms of art creation. 
And I would say uh, uh, that artists should uh, should definitely um, uh, uh, should definitely develop the uh, their their digital abilities. Is that is that what you're referring to? I mean, more like I mean, if you look at the early 20th century and. Uh, the impetus for cubism starting was the invention of photography and Picasso and Braque trying to show that painting can do more than photography can. And so the, the technology of the day prompted the artistic style and the, in fact the genre um, of, of the artist at the time. I think at the moment just the way we're heading with technology, with artificial intelligence, virtual reality, there's a whole new territory of art that hasn't been explored yet or has been explored but perhaps not sufficiently um, and I just think it's so interesting that you know you'll you'll make uh, the technological age your subject but you'll be doing it on an iPad or on on however you uh, represent that digitally and I just think that's almost never happened before where the subject and the um, method of representing that subject are so intertwined yeah it, it's definitely a, it's a it's definitely a brave new world um, this is an inflection point um, and I think we're moving very rapidly to whole new forms of expression, and uh, certainly, uh, I th- and I think that um, um, uh, uh, the moving image will become much more prevalent, uh, and uh, and I think art will become uh, uh, somewhat uh, it'll be u- somewhat ubiquitous, and I think ch- changing, and there'll be it, it, it's a it's it it is a. Uh, it's hard to imagine where it's really heading, to be quite frank. Um, so, uh, do you feel a sense of optimism for the direction of innovation and technology at the moment, or a oh, bit well, more foreboding? No, no, no. I'm, I'm very optimistic about it. I think uh, technology, science, and so on. I mean, of course, my interests is in, are in are in in the arts and and in the in the sciences. And I believe, I believe, really, when you look when you look at all of the advantages, uh, science. Uh, uh, has brought uh, 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 to us uh, uh, the stimulation that we're getting as well from all the different channels of uh, entertainment, for example. It's all driven by the internet and uh, digital technology. We've got this dis- distribution of and uh, a very distributed form of marketplace for art now. And I think uh, these things are excellent. No, I encourage it. Uh, I'm not quite sure where it's leading. I'm not quite sure what the business model is actually behind it because I am, uh, uh, I have been a businessman, and I, uh, I'm curious how people will actually move forward with this and take advantage of the moment. Mm, yeah, because I think we do need we do need a marketplace of some sort. I mean, artists need to be able to make a living, uh, but how that will work, I'm not quite sure. I think, for example, with the fungible tokens, uh, it's interesting that now you can create a digital work of I, art. I still don't quite you, understand those. Like non NFTs, they're called, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. So uh, NFTs. So uh, <laughs> it's a bit of a black box for nearly everybody, including me. But it seems uh, essentially that um, uh, yes, in in a sense, you can be the owner of something digital, even though it can be reproduced by others and displayed by others and so on. You fundamentally can be the owner of that, um, and so in a sense, uh, then it creates that degree of rarity that's necessary for a for a market to function but how is it how is it rare if it can be reproduced identically or do you own does someone own the copyright to it so say if you buy the rights to a tweet by someone famous and then someone else screenshots that and posts it somewhere else you can sue them for posting it without your permission i suppose that's right and it certainly will be uh it'll, 
of course, it's evolving and it's a very, very early stage for this sort of thing. But yes, uh, I believe that is what will happen. Um, and uh, uh, I suppose we'll, we're yet to see. Uh, but, uh, um, you know, how, how, how people can defend their rights, but no doubt that will be possible in the future because if you have a digital signature on something, uh, then ultimately you can defend uh, the right to display that and to have that traded. Um, so we'll see where it heads. But, but certainly all of this is going to change the landscape, the business and market landscape for art, and I think it will be a good thing, quite frankly, uh, because I think part of the problem really has been um, uh, the gallery system, I think, which is very – which is driven by uh, – there's a sort of nepotism and there's a sort of support of certain names and so on to the exclusion of young up-and-coming artists who often can't break through because uh, – uh, and uh, but, but now uh, a, little bit, uh, a little bit like social media, artists can pop up out of almost anywhere and have a good chance of being seen and making careers for themselves and not hit that glass ceiling or face that closed door. Hmm. So you think the commercial gallery's going to become more and more redundant moving forward? Uh, yeah, look, I think they'll be disintermediated. Yes, I think they will. And I mean, it started almost with the affordable art fairs, in fact. Um, but yeah, there's, they'll, they'll be challenged. They will be challenged, yes. What do you um, think a commercial gallery can offer an artist that they can't get working by themselves? Well, I mean, they still function, of course, and they're with their traditional model, um, and they haven't been, they haven't been, they're not obsolete yet. Uh, they tap into, um, they've got, you know, they've obviously got customer lists, they've got wealthy collectors on their books, and they can, uh, you know, they can affect sales for artists, and, uh, and they can, by controlling the supply, I guess, of the art produced by, uh, by by artists on their books, they can they can manage uh, they can manage the value uh, and the pricing of that art. So um, yeah, they've still got they've still pretty active, um, but there's a lot of uh, pretentiousness and arrogance in the art community. In the art community, mm-hmm. um, I mean, typically they don't you don't get an explanation as to what a work is about or whatever. Um, you there know, seems to be so little of that real art criticism or analysis in the art world in general. Yeah, exactly. It's. Uh, I think. Um, I think it's. I think it's surprising, really, how the art community and certainly the galleries and the and and the and the museums get away with not, uh, not, really providing more information about what their philosophy is behind any particular work of art. There's a kind of uh, kind of silence that falls over the artwork. It's almost never explained. It's left ambiguous as if to explain it is somehow to denigrate it. It's like mm. it's some sort of quantum state that if you start measuring it, it'll sort of collapse on you. Mm. And I think, um, I think uh, um, conversely, I'd have to say, I mean, I do think we should open the discussion around um, uh, thinking about objectively um, what is good art and what is not good art. And I think um, – and that will help us maybe uh, – uh, at some level, to start to you know to see the truth of the the situation, uh, and maybe uh, junk some of that bad art. Okay, do you, uh, think, do you think that has anything to do with? I mean, the the lack of willingness of people to say what is good art and what is bad, bad art, or just have a barometer in general. Having gone to art school myself, I find that this whole sort of you know the notion of postmodernism and that all subjective realities are equally valid and stuff sort of that's almost what's hampering people's ability to say what's good and what's not. Everyone's sort of like, you know, who are you to say what is mm. good art and what is bad art? 
Yes, well, I'm not sure what your personal experience is there in the art school, but that sounds about right. There's there's also this competing philosophies there and there's uh, competing agendas. And, uh, you know, I think people are just... Uh, they're loath to give an opinion because I think a lot, a lot don't have it have the skill to assess actually, and so they're in the business but they're not really qualified, uh, or they haven't the the learning or the knowledge. So I mean, so I, coming back to this point, actually, um, uh, I think you can actually objectively assess what is. Um, uh, you can put parameters around what is good art and what is not, and I think it's important to go down there. So I. In my thinking around this, I think there are probably three or four key things, um, and I'd say they are originality, um, uh, composition, uh, execution, and uh, something maybe that you could call harmonic. And so, for example, let me let me elaborate a little bit on this. So, originality—the idea or the juxtaposition juxtaposition of ideas and concepts, the message, the quality of that message of that original. Uh, idea is important. I think it needs, the the artwork needs to have needs to really spring off the canvas or wherever wherever it resides and stimulate through its original concept. Then I'd say composition. So, how are the elements laid out? How is that idea expressed? Using what subject matter, the size, position, and so on? Uh, how do the elements sort of interact to give a to to deliver that? Uh, idea, uh, the quality of that idea. Then there's execution. So this is what we're talking about before. This idea of having the quality of craft and materials and the ability of the artist to actually actually execute the skill. Because there's there are many artists out there. Let's face it, we all know have very little skill. Um, maybe they're uh, uh, <laughs> um, uh, what what a what a sad state. But anyway, the execution, <laughs> right? And then I'd say harmonic. Uh, so. This is something I just added uh, in the spur of it because I was thinking about this. I think art sometimes resonates to the to the viewer in a way music does. Uh, it's a sort of an innate re reaction that we have to art sometimes or often. And so it can be the colour or the form. Uh, just as the right note in music sort of resonates, you can get, you can get a kind of a – it's like a sort of a feng shui of the canvas, you know, does it hang together in this lovely harmonic way? Non non analytical, just immediate. Non analytical, response. no. That's yeah. exactly right. that is yeah. a deep. This is subjective, but sort of real thing there. Okay, so I would say a good work of art will have uh, a good work of art will have two of these four things. You can say it's a good work of art if it really nails two of them. Okay, uh, it's just really it's excellent if it's got three, and you're you're staring at a masterpiece if it's mm. got all four. You uh, said but you said originality. Is it enough for an artwork to be just novel? Or does it have to say something a bit more profound about, I don't know, the human condition or something for it to be a, an idea worth espousing? Because you could, I mean, I could, we could use the materials in this room to make an artwork of, that's completely new, no one's ever seen it before or something like it before. And so in that sense, it's original. But is it enough for it just to be novel or does it have to be, as I said, more profound? I don't think just novelty, because really everything in this universe is novel in one sense. There isn't an atom that's not in a unique position in this world. So I think it has to be more than that. Uh, and I don't mean to deprecate in any way your question. And I think, again, uh, originality, in a, the essence of what I'm referring to there is that um, something that, in a sense, you feel you haven't seen before, uh, uh, that 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 resonates in its... In a, <laughs> For, its, uh, uh, for the message that it gives, mm -hmm. I guess. So, yes, it's more than just 
putting juxtaposing you know an, an apple on a on a on, on a banana or whatever it's mm. it's and it's got to have some some other it it can be a, it can be a contrast of techniques or medium and so on and uh, uh, so it's got to be a bit more than that yes and mm. and that goes to what we were saying before about uh, the importance of technical facility because if you are technically gifted then you're much more aware of what's original and what's not original yes that's absolutely right and i think uh, uh that goes to composition of course and execution those other things that i mentioned as well mm-hmm. as well but certainly in terms of uh conceptualizing and formula formulating an original idea and concept it helps if you can start with some technical ability as well mm-hmm. so you can reverse engineer yes mm-hmm. some of those c's and d's towards the a's there mm-hmm. i always use as the barometer for how I determine whether something's a good work of art or successful work of art is how well does it represent something without simply making an illustration of it? Yes. So to what Mm. degree are the actions you're doing and how you're abstracting reality, Mm. which is what any style is, I guess, Mm. um, how does that convey what you're trying to say in a way that a photo wouldn't or just a more sort of objective documentation of it wouldn't? Yeah. Yeah, well, you're speaking to the originality part of of that, uh, uh, yes, that list of... uh, Mm. Uh, conditions precedent that I was referring to, yeah. Mm. I ask this question of a lot of my guests, but why do you think art is important? Um, look, I think with art we sense the kind of the freedom and the spirit of the artist. Uh, uh, we know intuitively they start with a blank page or a lump of clay and then they, they, they form that into something and... They, and in that process, we see how they've been free to make choices, and we there's a sort of a uh, we and we crave freedom and liberty ourselves. I think we all uh, we all want to breathe free and feel that we can be uh, uh, unbound. And I believe art is a type of a metaphor for that. It's a it's a liberating process. Uh, it gives us sort sort of an example of a more perfect world and we are stimulated and inspired by it and we have that sense of wonder that we experienced as children as well and which we crave because as we get older that um, there's less of that and uh, and I think we 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 uh, that is what we look for uh, in part as well so yes it's it's liberty it's freedom it's inspiration uh, it's uh, uh, it's the thrill um, Mm. It's the most sort of individualist occupation you can have in a way. Uh, in in what terms? In the sense that you're representing the world as you see it. It's not part. It's not part of a greater whole, although it is in some respects. Mm. Um, but it's almost uh, the most individualistic occupation you can have. In that you're, yeah. especially if you're getting paid for it, you're monetizing your opinion on the world and your view of the world. Yes, well, you're, that's right. And uh, individual, in, in that sense, uh, that ref, that's that's harking back to what I was sort of mentioning in the sense that you, yeah, you're, you're, unbound, you're unbound, you're able to do whatever it is that you wish to do. There's no, there's no rule that you need to follow. Um, and that's a wonderful metaphor for people. I mean, we live lives that are bound by rules and regulations and obligations and so on. And uh, we all... We all dream to breathe, breathe free and to um, follow our own unique paths uh, uh, with as little fettering as possible. But the, and the artistic process is very much that. It's the, the artists are 
typically gregarious, uh, extroverted people that uh, don't even think about following the, the norms very often. Um, but some, they aren't all like that necessarily. Some can be more process-driven, but at, at its core, it's a it's a it's a metaphorically a, a sort of a liberating and uh, uh, exercise. And, and we and, we, and uh, that's right. What motivates you to collect art, and what motivates you to create it? I wouldn't say necessarily I'm motivated to collect art as such. Um, uh, I I think. Um, I quite enjoy uh, displaying art, though, uh, so that I can be immersed by it more so. And I think art, over time, changes its uh, its meaning for people um, and for myself. Um, I enjoy uh, visitors coming uh, to my home and uh, gaining pleasure in seeing uh, what I've got. And I also enjoy showing my own art, um, which uh, sort of signals to people somewhat who I am and uh, understand what interests me, and sometimes it can trigger an exchange uh, of ideas and, and discussion. So, um, well, just for the listeners, then, how would you describe your work, and uh, what are the concepts you usually work with? Um, well, um, I'm quite indulgent, really, because I produce art very much for myself, and sometimes I like to go down one path, uh, and then I like to go down another. Um, but I am. Uh, I, I'm not. Uh, I'm not. I don't. Well, I say I'm not. Um, uh, I generally have uh, a subject that is very uh, approachable, and um, uh, and I work uh, somewhat intuitively. To be frank, um, I look to get a right combination of form and colour and expression that that resonates, and uh, it is a quite a subjective process. And uh, I can't say uh, that I follow a strict thematic or uh, te technical path. Um, I'm pretty indulgent in the whole process. Um, and uh, I'm not a known artist per se. Um, I'm somebody that's uh, existed on the fringes um, uh, and, uh, and indulging my own personal uh, journey. Uh, but... Uh, uh, despite that, um, and this is an, as an aside, um, uh, I've created art in a from a studio uh, perspective and I've produced actually a lot of art and I'm probably kind of one of the, I'm sort of the, um, I guess, um, one of the more successful artists that you've never heard of, curiously enough. Um, I, I had a, a, a series of um, paintings that I, uh, and works that I, um, that I directed and uh, uh, that was, uh, which was principally around the urban landscape because what I was stimulated by was the work of uh, Victor Vassarelli. He was a, a, a pop artist and he created these wonderful three-dimensional shapes uh, on, on the flat canvas using a sort of Euclidean geometry and very careful painting. And you had the sense that the work was coming out uh, in a very three dimension, and so I thought, why must one do this with Euclidean shapes? Why not? Why not show uh, the impermanence and the transience of our world and the shapes that we're familiar with, our urban landscapes, and reinterpret them in this kind of fluid manner? So I started to distort uh, what is otherwise thought of as fixed 
uh, objects, buildings, places, interiors, and with the distortion show um, their plasticity, their impermanence, and layer this um, layer the, these other, uh, I suppose, uh, counterpoints of um, dimensionality into the work. Um, so that required a lot of digital processing because uh, I didn't want to plot it all out uh, <laughs> laboriously mm. by hand, and I was able to do that. And um, what was interesting was to use a juxtaposition of ideas, uh, which I quite like because you get this sort of natural tension that comes from, say, juxtapositioning um, a, a Euclidean distortion on a traditional building or a traditional place of residence and interior. So I... The, um, so I often would photograph the interiors of classic uh, classic buildings and so on, um, and then through distortion, contemporise the whole the whole image. Uh, and so this was a strong thematic for me, and it was actually a very successful one. I've, I, I sold many paintings, mm. and um, uh, uh, but you know, in the end, I kind of moved on somewhat because, again, out of um, I suppose just the desire to entertain myself. Uh, I took different pathways, and uh, today I'm more prone to using um, uh, drawing tablets to um, uh, to create repeating uh, uh, elements um, and to get to gain complexity that way, and through sort of fantasy landscapes. So I quite like drawing. Um, plants that don't really exist in the real world um, and showing fields of... Anyway, so, yeah, I can't, once again, it's a interesting, wonderful sort of journey, mm. I guess, yes. It's interesting, though, because it's almost, I don't know, frowned upon or something when there's not a consistency in someone's style as an artist, when someone, you know, one one painting looks completely different to the next, but I've always found that kind of ridiculous because that's almost the definition of originality. If each each work is completely different to the last one, but I guess in the sort of commercial art mm. gallery environment, that would be a complete no go. Yes, well, look, I'm fortunate. I mean, in a sense, I was sufficiently successful in my business career that I didn't need to pursue art uh, 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 in order to make a living. Gave you, an, gave you an artistic so independence. So I was set free. I'm one of those artists that is tr completely unhinged and set free. <laughs> and, uh, of course, uh, that's partly why I'm on the fringe because unless you are completely consistent, you're not going to meet the needs of the gallery system that will constantly... Mm insist that you produce works that people are asking for, that they know they can sell. For God's sake, you know, leave A alone, go to B, we need more of B. Mm. You know, and that, that, is a, that is unfortunate, I think, for artists that they need to perform like, uh, you know, exactly like, like circus animals in mm. a sense and do, do as they're told, which is really anathema to an artist because artists are, are always try, are feel, you know, are searching for the novelty and the newness and the freshness and so on. Um, so... Uh, you're absolutely right in that regard, and I. But I think, well, it's partly it's a shame because at the root of the uh, gallery system, it's it's feeding the needs of collectors who aren't always don't always appreciate the art in any event. Um, what they what they appreciate is whether the art is appreciating. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, they look to make they look to build their wealth from it, and um, which is a worse approach as well, just because if you're going. I, 
if you want to make the best investment as an art collector, I feel you should look at the cheap artists and pick who you like because of the art, because you like it, not because you think it's going to be a good investment. Because if you like the art, that person's, and you've got a good taste in art, that person's most likely going to be a good artist one day and it'll be a good investment regardless. Well, quite possibly. I mean, that's why I've certainly bought your painting without knowing anything about you, but I thought this is really an excellent work. So (laughs) Appreciate it. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Especially in the early stages of an artist's career, when a collector purchases one of your works, it's hard to sort of describe how nice of a feeling it is. Do you get a sense of satisfaction in bolstering and supporting the career of an artist? And do you see yourself... Uh, sort of as much of a, as a as a patron uh, as as you do as a collector. I'm not really. A, I can't say I'm a patron of the arts, to be frank. Um, although I could easily be uh, persuaded uh, to, because uh, uh, I like the company of artists. Um, uh, uh, you know, I feel I've got a part of me uh, wants to it w- enjoys uh, um, uh, the comp- certainly very much the company of people that think uh, think that way, think the way artists think. And uh, so, yeah, I'd love to be tapped into um, and meet more young artists. And uh, uh, I'd certainly consider um, helping them. Uh, why not? Um, to overcome obstacles to success. I suppose that's uh, something that's left to me and that I can do. Um, uh, so, yes, that's right. Because you sort of go, as an artist, you go from the lowest of lows and the highest of highs. I mean, you're the lowest being you're making artworks that no one's buying and you're dirt poor. And then when you're selling the artwork, you're getting paid literally for this, just an idea that you've put down on a 2D plane. And it's sort of the biggest juxtaposition between uh, a compliment and being uh, out on the street. So it's, it's quite interesting when, when a collector buys your work uh, well, you know, this is again. You know, I I, I remember I met a, a gallery owner, a very a very well known one, who's I shall not name, and uh, um, we were having a cocktail. It was a lovely event, and I must have had a, a drink too many because um, uh, I think I described myself as an artist. Now, you know, <laughs> you've got to be very careful when you're going to do that, especially if you're not. You know, instantly known. Your name's not instantly mm. known, so it's sort of like, oh, you're an artist. Yeah, sure. Uh, and uh, and so this woman turned to me and she said, well, you know, do you sell? You, you know, do you sell? Are you selling? And actually up to that point I had been selling but that hadn't been my primary motive to be frank and most of my stuff wasn't selling. It was just sitting around, right, uh, whether it was digital or whatever it was and maybe somewhat narcissistically I was hanging it in my house and then I thought maybe this is all, you know, bullshit. Perhaps I'm just fooling myself and I thought... Okay, let's see how hard it is to sell art, right? And uh, so that's when I launched. And that, but of course, the gallery system at that point. I mean, galleries are always looking for, you know, the the young uh, emerging artists. You know, how can somebody in their forties or fifties or older? How can they possibly break into that? How can they say that they had any skills? What they were hiding them all this time, right? So. Uh, uh, I mean, I had other things to do, but uh, uh, I was perfectly satisfied. But at this point, I realised uh, the horse had bolted. I wasn't, I, I didn't have the runs on the board. I needed to get the runs. And how could I do that? So that's when I discovered the art fair. and uh, The affordable art fair? Yes, the affordable art fair and other fairs. And as it happened, uh, I had a building in Geelong and uh, a jewellery store there. Um, let me just... Uh, 
ad, it's the best jewellery store in Geelong in the whole of the Bellarine. What's the name? It's called it? Charles Rose Jewellers. Don't worry, everybody in Geelong knows it. Just a quick plug. Yeah, I don't even need the plug. I really win. <laughs> <laughs> but sure. Uh, fortunately, I owned the building and uh, upstairs uh, was sort of empty. We had sort of, we created kind of gallery spaces. So then I launched a gallery because you needed to have a gallery often to get into these fairs. So I thought, well, I'll start a gallery and then I'll... Uh, and then so I, I started selling in the art fairs and, you know, um, the rest is history. It really, uh, it really was very successful, thankfully. And then I, uh, and I needed to see that, not so much to, uh, to get a thrill that somebody, uh, not, it wasn't for the monetary side at all. It was just to, I did in a sense understand that unless you, unless you sell, it's very hard for you to be sure uh, that, what you're doing has great value. Although, of course, you know, many of the great artists never sold anything, but still. Uh, but to I, know that it's more than just compliments when people say yeah, it's a good work of art. Yeah, yeah. It's good to, if you sell, you know, uh, that's right, there's degree of affirmation there. So I got that uh, and that was great, I suppose. Yeah. Mm. Just as a thought experiment, what would be the difference between a collection of originals and a collection of identical reproductions? Well, that's a very interesting. That's a very interesting question. Um, I'd say that uh, if you just imagine, if you're sitting in a, I'd say not that much, quite frankly, in a very palpable sense. I mean, imagine you're a person sitting in a uh, in a prison. You know, if you're in a prison cell where all the status signalling and all the materialism is gone, uh, then. I'd say a perfect reproduction or a very good reproduction of a work of art would be very satisfying to have and to to, to consider. Um, there'd be a great substitute for original work. Uh, but, of course, we can't always make perfect reproductions. Uh, and very often in the movement of paint, in the... Um, uh, uh, in, as you transmogrify the material into new shapes with technique and so on that can't be necessarily reproduced in the copy, uh, then you're going to lose some of that in the copy. You'll, some of that meaning will be lost. But most of the meaning will be there for you. And surely that's what really counts. Um, and, I mean, most of the great works of art are too expensive for people to own. And I don't think it matters. We can still enjoy them, can't we? Um, so... Um, I think, however, though, I mean, obviously there are exceptions around sort of sentimental issues, things like uh, who who created the work, why was it created, who for, and I know I've got paintings by my mother and I'm happy to have the originals. Uh, I was there when she painted them and uh, I treasure them. But, um, uh, but no, I think, I think in a very real sense, um, reproductions can be perfectly adequate, although this runs against, of course... Uh, the traditional The opinion. traditional, the mm. idea, that's right um, uh, You know, owning originals It's a sort of a rich man's game of one-upmanship And investment philosophy And, and it's not really in integral to the appreciation of a work of art um, But despite what I've just said uh, It's certainly, there is something that dr drives people to own And own originals and so on I'm not sure how worthy all of that is mm. Mm. I guess it almost commands a bit more attention. So if you're looking at a reproduction of something, you might just uh, look away from it a bit quicker than if you could actually see the brush strokes and you were sort of drawn in and a bit more intrigued, mm. I guess. Mm. But yeah, this is just an interesting 
as a thought experiment for you that I didn't have an answer to. So <laughs> just thought I'd throw it out there. Uh, who are some of your favourite artists in any genre? Um, you know, I was reading the New York Times and uh, they were saying, oh, the best, the best books ever written, right? Uh, and up there was Lolita by Nabokov. And I thought, oh, my God, surely this was just a work of – this was in – I thought, how could that, that be there? And, and especially mm. even, to, even to mention it in this day and age. I hadn't read Nabokov. I read it and I was I – was, I thought it was extraordinary. So, yeah, I'd say, you know, Nabokov. Um, it's got recency bias. You've read it recently. Uh, yeah, recency bias. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Um, I, I, I do like the work of Alain de Botton. Uh, I think it's just wonderful uh, that you can learn so much. Uh, he's so original in his style and his expression and you learn about, a lot about the human condition when you read his work. So he's very contemporary, so that's fabulous, really. I suppose in the, in the, uh, in the visual arts, uh, well, I mentioned Vasarelli because he was inspirational at one point. And then the greats like Van Gogh, I mean, really, uh, I just can't get past him. And Basquiat, of course, more contemporary, Lucian Freud, mm. Escher because of his just wonderful, you know, inspirational concepts and execution. Jeff Koons, you know. Uh, Do you like Jeff Koons? I like Jeff Koons. And I know he's very controversial. I mean, he's got no skills as an artist as such. He's, he's another art director, I think. Yeah. Uh, that's all he does. But uh, I like him until he starts talking about art personally. Well, yeah, whatever. Okay, <laughs> we could agree to maybe disagree. First disagreement. Uh, yeah, first disagreement. I mean, I heard what he had to say. He, did, he was talking about the importance of art. Uh, to people, and so I think he did touch on the things that I, I've spoken about. I'm not mm. Hokusai, who I saw when I was in Japan a couple of years ago. I thought uh, was just I had no idea the depth of his work and the, just the wonderful uh, collection of work that mm. I saw there. Uh, Mondrian, uh, just just for the simplicity and the just the resonance of it. Um, look, I'm not that selective. I'd have to say there's uh, too many to pick from. There's too many to pick from. Do you think Van Gogh? Um, do you think Van Gogh was the? I don't know. If, this is such a loaded word and it might even be incorrect, but just the most passionate artist that's ever lived. Oh, I don't know. Just left such a mark and... Oh, you just really, yeah, you've got his heart is on his sleeve. Mm. He's on, his heart's on the canvas there. It's just so moving and uh, so wonderful in expression and, yeah. I think in Australia, uh, Brett Whiteley, you know, he, mm. uh, what's not to like, Mike Parr. I loved it when Breck Whiteley said uh, he'd rather have methadone than kendone. I thought, oh, God. Yeah, it's a bit like when Paul Keating said, does a marsh, you know, does, can a souffle rise twice uh, when he was talking about That's that. a great line. Yeah, but methadone, okay. Um, look, I really, like, uh, I really like Jeff Koons. I think he's challenging. Um, I don't know. Uh, the, again, he's produced some wonderful stuff. Um, but uh, it's pretty transparent, so maybe that's it. It goes back to this idea if you can explain it, maybe there's something wrong with it. Um, I just saw uh, Robert Hughes once absolutely rinse him in a conversation about art and that sort of scarred me as far as Jeff Koons goes. Yes, uh, okay. But Robert Hughes does that to a lot of artists, so I guess that's not, <laughs> not entirely fair to yeah, Jeff. Okay. Uh, what do you think are the consequences for a society that becomes uh, disenchanted and disillusioned with art? Because I sort of worry that art's become so highfalutin and elitist almost that mm. art's meaningless and irrelevant to more and more people. And I think more and more people are disillusioned with art than they were, say, 100 years ago, for instance. Um, and it's, I mean, 
just amongst a lot of my friends, it's seen as bullshit, which to a large extent it is. And that's coming from a lover of well, art. This is part of the problem that we were talking about before, that very often people aren't given the privilege of understanding what the artist's intention was. For some reason, all of these things, this cone of silence thing. Mm. And also, um, uh, also we've had, I think, a lot of installation art and also art that's just not, doesn't require technical expertise, where people just placing things and just, I don't know, uh, a lot of the time I'm disenchanted by it myself. Um, but it will rise again. I think it is in one sense going through a low point. That's mm. true. But uh, again, I think with technolo the technology and the new skills, I think we'll see a new dawn. Uh, but uh, there, is, there have been problems. And also, again, the, 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 the gallery system, once it's out of the way, I think, um, we'll move to another uh, brave new world. We'll see what it, what it holds. Um, but for societies that um, societies that reject art or for which art is um, uh, suppressed, then those societies really are kind of dying from the inside out. Uh, I think it's quite difficult to strip art from society. Um, it typically requires a sort of a totalitarian regime um, led by some sort of narcissistic, um, malevolent despot like uh, Kim Jong-il or maybe... Hitler or something mm. like that. So it's not easy to do, but it can be done. It can be forced upon people. Um, yeah, I don't think an evil society and a thriving artistic culture can coexist mm. personally. It's sort yes. of mm. one cancels the other out. Mm. It's interesting what you said as well about uh, installation art. I've always felt that the it's, – it's not to take away from installation art and there are – you know, there's great work that comes out of it, but if your medium is objects – and that's just all it is, and it can be any object, then it's quite hard to distinguish yourself stylistically mm. because any installation would look like an installation by another artist mm. or it would look derivative of that anyway. Whereas setting parameters like, okay, this is a painting, now how are you going to distinguish yourself within that medium? Or yes. this yes. is a sculpture, how are you going to distinguish yourself within this medium? That's where stylistic flair mm. thrives, I think. And I think that's part of the problem with installation mm. is it's impossible for it not to look derivative of another installation artist. Yes, that's right. And it tends to follow these, it tends to follow these thematics that to try and lift itself a bit. So very often there's repetition. So you might see like, uh, you know, like a million safety clips or something all lined up because we all kind of respond to repetition and to symmetry. So it, it, it's that harmonic that I was talking about. So it satisfies that precondition, right? But as you say, there's, it's sort of uh, it's art with your arm, both arms tied behind your back because <laughs> how can you express yourself by moving objects around? Mm. Uh, not very well, frankly, and I mm. agree with you. Um, yeah, and very often you just see just black lines and outlines. And there's, I mean, there's sort of tricks of the trade, I'd say. Uh, it's very but, easy to fluff it. Right? Yeah, very easy to fluff it and look good. So, yeah, I'm not there. I am not there, but then maybe I'm. You know what? I'm, others will. I'm sure will yeah. will disagree. A lot of um, a lot of that kind of work mm. is dependent on uh, the interpretation of it and doesn't work on its own merits. Yes. You know, whereas I feel, you know, some installation work, the more highfalutin, elite, you know, difficult to understand work. You'll have to explain it to the uh, you know the yes. less intelligent people as they would call as they would call it at art school. You know what I mean? But whereas you know, I think the best artworks are easy easy to be consumed by everyone. Yes, and um, uh, yeah, it's good if it's if it's yeah, exactly because I've like approach it even with the approachable. I've often thought with the I mean 
the impetus for the Renaissance and sort of that drive towards realism was the desire to make the word of God known to the illiterate. And so it was, I think, the moving, putting, putting aside antique art, the first sort of great uh, artistic movement has its foundation in being easily understood by the general public. It was actually designed to be understood by as many people as possible. And I feel like mm. sort of installation art's almost the opposite of that. It's it's not made to be understood by yes. by your average person. Yes. Um, so I know that for some of your pieces, as we've said, you'll hire a painter to do um, part of it for you. Uh, and as I'm sure you know, this is in fact quite an old process and many of the old masters would have entire studios and workshops that did large parts of their paintings for them. But what are the conceptual implications of this, do you think? Um, Does it change the meaning of the work? I don't think it changes the meaning of the work as such. Um, uh, certainly if you follow the, uh, what's required uh, as a pr- in, the, in the process, and that is uh, to always stay very true and precise to the, uh, the, the idea of the originator, the leader. I mean, I think it's a simple truth that most creative and imaginative people are not always the most technically talented. Uh, should they be excluded? No. I mean, if you're making a bronze, typically you need a, a team of people. Um, architects, they're typically not very good at bricklaying. Songwriters, uh, they're not very good at singing, by and large. Playwrights at acting. And in the visual arts, uh, most certainly, as you say, there have always been schools and, of artists working collaboratively, typically under the guidance of a, a creative director. And today is absolutely no different. Uh, you know, you've got Warhol, Jeff Koons, Takeshi Murakami. They're all managing hundreds of painters and artisans and so on. But to be, but to be uh, in order to be sort of faithful uh, to the vision of the, the work of art that the director has in mind, the art has to be, in my view, of a certain type that doesn't rely on any sort of serendipitous results uh, material blending, transmogrification of material, or as I mentioned before, the application uh, techniques shouldn't feature in the work as such. So I think typically it's things like photorealistic painting or graphic art techniques using sort of flat colour, which is what you see a lot of out of these studios, mm. um, photographic techniques and so on. Look, there are pluses and minuses in all of this. Um, I think uh, the, the, the school... The art, the art that comes from from these studios, um, they are limited, as I've said, uh, in not being in not uh, not using uh, material um, manipulation and so on and technique to uh, uh, identify uh, or be a, a key part of the of the art. Uh, but groups of art, on the other hand, can bring together uh, quite a unique and powerful combination of different skills because you get multiple people with different skills collaborating that will help you rise to a very high level uh, that you won't find typically that you won't find hardly ever in any individual uh, person uh, and they can also tackle very large works and they can make many works so there are pluses and there are minuses uh, but it's definitely valid um, and look I've, I've used it successfully uh, although uh, I'm, I'm a competent technical drawer, I've mm. drawn all my life. I don't have any problem with. It. I enjoy it. I love the actual act of drawing uh, and and exp- expressing myself. Um, but uh, you know, I, I came to the point where I had this, as I mentioned, this idea of 
uh, producing painted works of hyper-realistic urban landscapes. So I didn't want to labour over those. I, sp I figured I could probably produce a hyper-realistic painting, mm. uh, but I chose not to. At that point, I made the decision I'd get others to do it and I'd create the imagery um, through uh, digital processes, quite frankly. So... I then went on a sort of a Siddhartha journey uh, to different locations where I felt I could get the right imagery. Uh, I took photo thousands of photos in multiple different locations. I used quite a few different techniques uh, to uh, change and combine images, uh, create digital collages, different colour palettes, um, distortions, and uh, then ultimately I'd, I'd instruct a painter or a team of painters to produce that image exactly as I had produced it myself. I gave them the image, I just had, didn't give them a painted image, and their job was to print it out, basically. I used them like an inkjet printer, but they were a, you know, an oil, oil paint printer, yeah. right? <laughs> Nothing wrong with that, you know, it looked fabulous. And why, would, why, why didn't I just produce an inkjet print? I suppose I could have, but, you know, I had this idea that I, I knew that the art establishment wouldn't take to it. They, again, they needed to see <laughs> the traditional form for it to sell, and then before I got it to the galleries, I got it to the art fairs, and that the rest is history. Um, so, yeah, that's that's uh, you know that's my journey. And so, yes, I'm not ashamed of it. I know some people would look down on it, but there's not too many that would reject a Warhol. He never drew anything, mm. I don't think, uh, or uh, you know, give me a break. So, yes, it's. It's about producing quality work and being true to your inner exp exp expression and your originality. And I did that and I'm very happy that I did and I went down that journey. Mm. It did help me actually produce a lot of art that I couldn't have done on my own at a time when I had lots of other pressures and obligations in my life. So it worked beautifully. Mm. Well, as I said to you before, it's almost like your role goes from uh, being an individual artist to a conductor or a director mm. of something much grander. When did you first become interested in space markers? Um, look, I, I suppose it's really an adjunct to my interest in science as such. Um, I was drawn to the absolutism of scientific reasoning, uh, the sort of the uh, indisputable logic, the... Uh, you know, when I was young, uh, I wasn't brought up in a religious family to, as such and I, uh, I was sort of shocked that people would believe in things in the absence of evidence. Uh, so I thought, no, I'm not going down that road. Um, and, you know, the journey with science has just been wonderful. It's so deep and so varied uh, and so insightful um, and vivid and enriching. So I'm talking about sort of theoretical science. I was, you know, I, I read always, always read quite widely. And, and then I uh, loved um, – and then – to me, the final sort of frontier, so to speak, space. I mean, you look up at night, you just see a few thousand stars and uh, the casual observer doesn't understand that there's so much more out there that's quite accessible now, particularly with technology that en enables uh, amateurs like myself to actually engage to view and to photograph deep, deep space uh, objects. So, um, look, I think... Uh, well, cause, just quickly, because I've, I've seen photos of your observatory setup that you have uh, on Instagram. But just for the listeners, could you describe that setup and just a general process by which you get these photos of space? Um, 
okay, well, I've got a, I've got, uh, I've got an astronomical observatory in a dark, uh, uh, in a dark sky environment that's just out of Melbourne. Uh, although I've got peers that photograph things from the suburbs of Melbourne, and you'd be shocked how good it is. But in any event, so there's there's a, there's an observatory, uh, and it's got a dome on it, and I can open part of the dome and rotate the dome, so that way, and I've got a telescope that points that I can point out through anywhere in the sky and I turn the dome so that the aperture of the dome is <laughs> enables the telescope to see wherever it is I'm pointing it. So you turn oh, the Oh, so tele- the dome functions as does the aperture for you, No, the, for, for the lens? No, the dome is just to protect the equipment and close it all up at night so that it doesn't get wet when it rains, really. Uh, otherwise, you could just have a telescope out in a field somewhere, but you have to protect it. So, uh, so I shouldn't really start with the dome. It's a bit confusing. But in any event, to describe what it is, I mean, it looks really lovely. It's just like a mini... Um, uh, looks pretty legit. It looks pretty legit. <laughs> but I've got some very heavy-duty equipment in there that I've put together with the help of... Um, um, uh, 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 one particular mentor, a fellow, Morris Vallenberti, who's the most charming, generous and skilled and intelligent man and he's helped me on my journey because it's technically very demanding. I'm not an engineer. Um, uh, uh, I didn't study that but I kind of wish I had but anyway. So it's not just purely... Uh being competent with cameras, there's a lot more to it. Than no, no, no. Well, uh, yes, I'll try and sort of keep it short. I don't know. I don't want to waffle on. Um, but in any you can waffle as much as you want, okay. Marcus. Okay. So the key, the key to doing this, and this is what's happened in the last few years. This technology has become accessible, affordable, and the quality gives you results that uh, you know you could only get from Mount Palomar. You know, 20 years ago, I took a photo that somebody said, "Oh, look, you wouldn't get that out of Mount." I Palomar. didn't know you could take photos like you take uh, as yeah, an amateur. Yeah, a lot of people don't realise it. In fact, the objects that are out there, I'll tell you about them in a minute. But in any event, what I've got is um, what you need is a thing that will track the sky because the Earth is turning. So if you're going to photograph something that's up there, it's moving across the sky, and because it's very small, you have to track it very, very precisely. So I've got this. Uh, I've got this uh, this device that that points the telescope and and moves it as the sky at the as, same rate that the, the object's same moving, rate, uh, and in exactly wow. the right direction that the object is moving in. And the technology behind that is it doesn't even use cogwheels anymore. They, there used to be this thing of the space between the 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 gears on cogwheels. Even that very slight space would give what's called backlash. So to get perfect tracking. They developed these tension wheels that just push against each other. So there's absolute precision. And the whole thing's run with a very tiny electric motor that's quite delicate. But it, and, it's, and, it's, and it's controlled by a, um, by a computer, a laptop, a powerful laptop. That, uh, and uh, when the, it's, Sorry, just quickly. When it's tracking that object, though, is that just it sees the light on a sensor and keeps track of that or it understands how far away that object is and why it would be moving at a certain rate and it takes that into calculation. That's a really good question. There's actually two there's well, you take the the telescope has a camera a camera sensor uh, to to grab the images, right? Uh, but uh, in addition there's another sensor with its own uh, that that takes a, um, that that is used by the computer to track a point on in the field of view which is a star and then gives a feedback uh, a feedback signal to the mechanism to keep it on track. So that's purely for the tracking process. Mm. But uh, I hope that you understand that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then the the actual the actual uh, image is taken by the sort of thing you've got at the back of your camera, but a much more sophisticated uh, imaging um, 
device, a CCD that is um, larger, uh, more sensitive, um, that's been manufactured specifically for this purpose, um, and which is in a housing that you cool down because CCDs, the little pixels um, on them, will give random signals and uh, what's important is to try and eliminate all noise so that you can differentiate what's real and what's not real in these images that you take. So you chill the CC down to about minus 10 or 20 degrees and that reduces the noise coming out of the random firing of the pixels on the CCD. So there's a, and then you've got a process of focusing. Now you might think it's just simple, but it's not. You have to, you have, I've got an automatic, automatic device, fairly recent technology that will continuously lock the focus on the object. So, um, but the focal mm. range must be vast if it's capturing vast objects. Well, you know, you can't just set it to infinity. It actually has to. It, there is a there's a focal plane that it focuses through and back and so there's a forward back process yeah but isn't that wouldn't it be literally millions of kilometers across the focal point so from i've seen some of your photos before and you'll see one object that's quite close and then you know a whole oh yeah well once you focus you get the whole image it's a bit like if you focus your camera everything's in focus Mm -hmm. whatever it is you're taking a photo a photo of that's right but uh what now of course um you set up all everybody's telescope shoots a different size, a different portion of the sky. That's called your field of view. And um, my field of view is, uh, uh, enables me to fit uh, uh, galaxies and uh, uh, stark uh, um, planetary nebula quite comfortably, most of the ones that you'd find. Some are a bit too big and they overlap the, the field of view and others are, are quite small and I have to crop the image. Uh, but... Um, uh, now, the process, that's also very interesting. It's, it's part of the technology. It utilises stuff that I think probably was developed by the CIA to identify, you know, identify things in images, and I'll explain how it works. So you find your object, then you take lots of photos of it, and then you put those photos into a computer program that, that, that interrogates each image and looks for the persistent part of the image in terms of its comparison to the other images that it's got. So it's always looking for the persistent part. In other words, anything that's not persistent is noise. And so mm. the program then eliminates that. You end up with an image that is made, that is composed of different elements of a whole stack of, or the whole stack, the image stack that you've created, and that's reduced down to a, a single image. Then uh, the image is captured in such a way that you can refine it and bring out uh, the darker ele- elements and tone down the brighter elements and then just check on colour balance and other, other fine details. So you do a bit of work on it. And finally, you can even just put it into Photoshop to help enhance it somewhat, you know. How many shots will you, or good shots, will you get in one night in the observatory? Well, uh, I mean, a, oh, look, a very typical uh, image might take three and a half minutes um, and uh, then I might take hundreds of them, you know, and can so you, can you and can you see what the photo takes if that makes sense so your your vision looking at the mm. uh, through the telescope is exactly what comes out in the photograph yeah uh, look i don't have live viewing through the telescope but i've got live viewing through a computer screen so it's not quite as good because i must admit when you see things with the naked eye it's a bit like seeing elvis at a distance you know <laughs> uh, but uh, you know i've gone through the live viewing and now i'm into the photography and quite frankly 
when I take when I make there's no other way to make a great photo than to use a computer and use mm. uh, you know it's not you don't see it with the naked eye nearly as well as you do with a, using this photographic process. What is that like though? Just to be, I mean, you're when you're in the observatory, you're by yourself. You're just looking at a you know collection of stars that no one else is looking at. That's tens of millions of light years away. Like, what are the emotions you get? It must be. Almost. That's interesting. I mean, a lot of the people I speak to, they're not that emotional about it because it's so technically kind of demanding that very often it's engineers and for some reason they're slightly more jo- – they're the drier end of the bell curve, right? Mm. Um, but I get I can get quite emotional. I look at these things and I think, oh, my God, you know, you, you read about them, they're just, they're just shocking and humbling things. And, uh, yes, I do get very emotional. But, I mean, sometimes I can be distracted by – uh, some, you know, sitting out there, if you, if, you can get very cold. So you can get bone-rattling cold and there can be mosquitoes that come in, right? So you're battling mosquitoes, you, you know, you, you can't feel the tips of your fingers. So it's hard it's, work. It's not for everybody. It can be very hard work. But um, sometimes, oh, well, typically I'll set it up. Once I get it right, I'll let it run for maybe 20 minutes and I'll go inside and let it do its thing. Uh, so, yeah. Was it the LIGO camera that took the photo of the black hole a few years ago. Do you remember that? When uh, yeah, the black hole. Uh, is yeah. that the LIGO project? The, uh, oh, I forget what the, No, you've caught me there. Well, that was where, that was where the, uh, they managed to take photos simultaneously from mm. different uh, observatories all, all over the world. Mm. And uh, they needed to capture the photo at exactly the right time. And... Uh, and they synthesised it, you know, and there was a huge amount of data and processing. It was just spectacular. Mm, Do you think black holes are the sort of most fascinating thing in the universe or the most intriguing at least? Look, you know, uh, it's interesting. I'd have to say at one level, dare I say, I've had an artist's (laughs) perception on this, Um, but it's, you know, look, so what's moved me? Um, Black holes, they're somewhat unknowable, Um, they're intriguing. Uh, there's been a lot written about them. But when you read about the... I've just... I must say this is just maybe a digression, but, you know, uh, what, what I understand now that is absolutely incontrovertibly accepted is that a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang, a trillionth of a second, that's when... The Big Bang is when the universe and time actually commenced. What was formed? Quarks. Now, quarks then were all there was, and about 100,000 years later, the quarks formed hydrogen. Now, hydrogen is, is a light, colourless gas, which, given enough time, turns into people. I mean, you want to talk about what's... It's wild. Wild? Quarks turn into people. People. Essentially, the universe has evolved to the point at which it's now self-aware through us. This is the evolution of quarks to become self-aware. So in the beginning, what God said was, let there be quarks, okay? (laughs) That's what happened, everybody, okay? Uh, Look, in fact, quantum theory says things can spontaneously appear out of nothingness. So uh, perhaps it was the quarks that said, let there be quarks, you know? (laughs) And if if there was a God, uh, let's give her due credit for creating this quintessential piece, dust that is 
that is a quark. You know, it's the divine fundamental particle that was able to reinvent itself as humanity. Fundamental because it can't be divided. What it is, is the a, fundamental... A quark is smaller than uh, atoms and protons and... Oh, yeah, yeah. Quark, the quark is the basis of, this, the, of the fundamental... Of the, uh, of the... The smallest building block. Yes, smallest mm. building block. So really, it's the quark. You know, let's pray to the quark. Let's, you know, celebrate the quark. And if God is out there, God created the quark. And the, what an amazing thing to set as an artist, you would know. Imagine having this tiny, tiny thing and setting that in motion and it creates human beings. That's there f- it is. Okay. So what else did I find that was extraordinary? Well, another thing was in 1924, that's pretty recent, Edwin Hubble discovered that there were galaxies other than the Milky Way, right? Now, that was, that's, that's as fundamental as, say, Copernicus who took the Earth from the centre of the solar system, we're talking about a man who discovered that the universe was trillions of times size, trillions of times larger than we had, uh, than we had understood. What do, you think, what do you think that does for human psychology collectively, that, like that kind of knowledge? Look, that's a really good question because sometimes I get a bit depressed over it, quite frankly. Mm. Uh, there's no question that we are... It does the reverse for me, I find. Well, no, that's, that's another way. And uh, we'll, I might touch on that point, actually, because there are two directions we can all go in. And we don't want to go in the depressed, mm. <laughs> depressed de- direction. Well, I, it's not a great one. I lean more toward yeah. it's amazing that amongst mm. all that space and all that time, mm. you and I are here having a conversation and yes. enjoying company. Yeah. We can drink coffee. We can eat food. We have, you know, yeah. all, okay. that, all that is possible in the vacuum okay. of space. Okay, but let me, just, let me just elaborate a little bit more on this thing about the galaxies. So what else did Hubble discover? I mean, as if that wasn't enough. As if that wasn't enough. No wonder they named the telescope after him. He, did, he examined all the galaxies, and except for the ones that were very close to us and coming sort of in our direction, he discovered all the galaxies were heading away from us, all of them, right? And the further away they were, the faster they were moving. Now, how can that be? How can that be? There's only one conclusion. He discovered, he discovered that we are living... He discovered and this is the truth of it, that the actual scale of the universe is getting larger. So space itself is being created. You understand? Um, this is not mo- they're not moving so much as they're, being, they're embedded in a universe that is just getting growing within itself, so to speak. It's so hard to conceptualise, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. This is, they're not moving of themselves. They're, everything's getting further away because... What it is is the Big Bang actually never ended. Mm. People say the Big Bang, or oh, that happened back. So no, it never. We're living, we're 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 living inside the Big Bang. It's mm. still happening. Now, what do you think about that? I mean, dark matter. Now, dark matter is called dark matter because nobody knows what it is. <laughs> so I'm certainly not. But it is the driving. It. Whatever it is, because it makes up what seventy percent of the universe, or. Something yes, like it does. That. It does. But it's the driving force in that expansion, isn't it? Uh, it's what it's what is. Uh, well, there's dark energy. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. But well, so, what do you think? What do you think? Dark. dark look, I don't know. There was one explanation given because I thought the idea that there's these. I mean, one explanation being that there's the you know the real baryonic matter is uh, uh, really just a very small percentage of the universe. What's so, baryonic matter? No, that's the kind of stuff that we that we. That we identify. That's not real. dark matter. No, that's not dark matter. Right. 
So uh, there was a there's a there's there's the people developing theory that maybe it's that the that the laws of physics as we know them change somewhat over distance, and that would explain that would explain the performance or the, uh, the what we observe in terms of the dynamics of galaxies and so on. For which the other explanation is that there's they're, they're bound together uh, by additional matter because the galaxies you see don't fly apart. Uh, as they should, given their velocity of their rotation, uh, uh, and for the amount of matter that is observed to be within them, so there must be a whole lot of other matter that we just can't see. Well, isn't that? Sorry to interrupt, but isn't that because there's a black hole in the middle of every galaxy, which is no, the gravitational? That's no, not true. That's not sufficient. No. But is that? Do some people believe that? I don't know what people believe, but that's not true. So yeah, that's not the reason for it. Uh, it has to be. Uh, it has to be much, much, much greater than than that. I mean, there are some incredibly heavy black holes, mm. but that, you know, the heaviest ones are millions of times the 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 mass of our sun. Mm. But in our galaxy alone, we've got uh, well, two to three hundred uh, billion uh, solar masses of of uh, baryonic matter. And a supermassive black hole wouldn't be enough to keep that all together. No. No. no, it wouldn't. Although, curiously enough, there's this, there, there is a, there is a there's a very large black hole pretty much at the at the centre of every galaxy, but there are quite possibly tens of thousands, if not millions, of much smaller black holes throughout the galaxy, mm. and there's thought to be one that's fairly close that they're looking at now. So that's interesting. I'll just tell you something else that I found amazing. So I was looking at this. Uh, there was this TV. Not a TV, there's a movie that t- called Beetlejuice. I don't know if you remember it. I've heard of it, never yeah, seen it. Yeah, Beetlejuice, you know, I thought. And anyway, there's this star called Beetlejuice and it's nothing to sniff about. I mean, the movie was fun, right? But this star is only 640 light years away. If that sounds like a long way, remember the Milky Way is about 100,000 light years in diameter. So this one's pretty close. This particular star is 130,000 times brighter than our sun. Now... That is just scary, quite frankly. 130,000 times. Our sun is like a little candle in the wind in comparison. And Betelgeuse is bigger than our sun. How many times bigger? What's the, the, it is 180 million times bigger than our sun. So there's some big stuff happening out there, people. Um, is that, does that only become a risk if they die and explode, or is that well? Betelgeuse is actually uh, Betelgeuse. Actually, uh, its 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 luminosity has been changing somewhat over the last short, relatively short period, and it will go supernova. Uh, stars of that size go off with it in a in a supernova explosion, and when it does, it'll probably be a, as bright as the moon um, uh, to us. But it has been uh, assessed as not presenting any existential threat to us, but it will be quite amazing when it goes off any time within the next couple of million years. I don't know, don't hold your breath. But it could happen tomorrow. (laughs) Actually, it could have happened already because it is 640 light years away. (laughs) So it could have happened 200 (laughs) years ago, right? Uh, Or 500 years ago, anyway. Do you ever look at um, Jupiter when you... Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, amateurs love... I had a different telescope before the one I've got now and one of the first things you do is photograph Jupiter because it's so wonderfully large and um, so you get a good view of it Mm. and the great red spot uh, is pretty easy to identify Uh, and there are whole teams of amateur astronomers comparing photos of Jupiter. Um, You know, Jupiter uh, circles the sun at a... a, um, 
further out than the Earth does. So it's travelling, it, uh, a Jupiter year is longer than an Earth year. I don't know how long it is. But as you can imagine, the Earth goes around and then sort of catches up to Jupiter and then it continues on and then it, the Earth is on the other side of the Sun to Jupiter and so on. So when the Earth is quite close to Jupiter, which guess what is now, uh, it's a terrific time to take photos of Jupiter. I was just about to say because two nights ago uh, me and my housemates were walking through a nature reserve uh, near our place in Elwood and we saw this massive star and we were wondering what it was so we got the app out that mm. tells you where everything is and it was uh, Jupiter. Yes. And I just thought it was – I'd heard as well on I think Carl Sagan or someone was saying how – the purpose of Jupiter in our galaxy, or at least what it does, is because it's such a large uh, yeah. mass, it mm. prevents uh, It's protected us. Yeah, it's almost like our it's shield against us, asteroids right. coming through. Exactly. I thought it was so beautiful to be yes. looking at this bright burning star and thinking yes. that's what's preventing our Yes, Carl Sagan, he wrote that wonderful short story about the pale blue dot, you know. Mm. That's and what it was. I was listening to the audio book of that actually. Yeah, yeah, mm. it's, un, it's unforgettable. Um, but uh, that's precisely right. And you'd have to say... In fact, uh, for intelligent life to have evolved on the Earth, there's a lot of preconditions that needed to be satisfied and one of them is that you needed a planet like Jupiter that was deflecting objects from our orbital, uh, from, from colliding with Earth, right? Uh, so it was sweeping the solar system clean of those objects and deflecting them out. That's another reason why, uh, uh, in case you're curious about my thinking on terms of uh, intelligent life elsewhere, I don't believe I don't believe there would be intelligent life elsewhere in the Milky Way, despite those hundreds of billions of stars and other candidates. Life comparable to us, you mean? Life or? comparable to us. Yeah. That's right. Because also, I mean, our, I mean, humanity, despite the fact we've been, um, uh, you know, our current form has been around for a few hundred thousand years. We've only had advanced society in the last few thousand years and it seems to me that we'll be lucky to survive another thousand, mm. thousand years because there's so much that's already kind of going wrong. So, um, you know, what's the chance that there's... The chance that another, another um, star system uh, is playing host to advanced civilization is pretty slim, mm. um, which is a shame, but... There are two trillion other galaxies, so the numbers are daunting and uh, I reckon there is something out there, most certainly, yeah. I reckon there's, and obviously speaking as a complete layman, but it would of course make sense for there to be other life forms out there, whether it says bacteria or even you know, flying octopus on oh. you know, another planet. But yeah. I just think there's been, what, tens of millions of species on Earth since it started and not one species is as complex as we are. Yeah. And I almost use that as a way of thinking. I kind of reckon we're a one-off mm. as far as that kind of uh, yeah, life well, form goes. We've but only, yeah. mm. Hard to know. Well, two, two, two trillion galaxies means there's 250 galaxies for every person on Earth, you know. That's a lot of galaxies. And um, what's interesting is that uh, this question as to whether there's life elsewhere, it's going to be resolved, I think, pretty soon because... Um, we've located a lot of planets around other star systems. Uh, the technologies enable that. There's thousands of planets that we've identified. And shortly, very shortly, the James Webb telescope will be put into a Lagrange orbit that's near Earth, about a million kilometres away, I think. And it is capable of analysing the, uh, the atmosphere on any of these planets because the starlight from... Uh, 
the host star for that planet will shine through the atmosphere of, of that planet that has been discovered and is identified and can then be analysed um, uh, to see whether or not it has any of the biomarkers for uh, the existence of life on those planets. Not necessarily intelligent life, of course, but yes, as you mentioned, it could be, could be just very simple organic life. But any discovery at that level uh, would be, I think, quite earth-shattering. We're about to find out, so just hang around for a few when years. When are they installing it? Uh, that, well, it's been delayed a number of years, but it should go up, I think, uh, in a year. So they're going to be able to tell with quite a lot of accuracy whether planets are inhabitable or not? Yeah, I think, I think you're going to see a headline, and everyone will take a lot of people by surprise because nobody's really thinking too much about this for some reason. But, um, yes, you'll see a headline that says, uh, Life Discovered on Other Planet. Wow. Yeah. And, where, and where's it being installed? Well, it's being launched. Uh, well, you know, the Hubble Space Telescope is in orbit around the Earth. And when it breaks down, they just go up there and they fix a few things. Mm. The James Webb Telescope um, is going to be launched uh, away, well away from the Earth so that it's uh, shielded. Ah, so it's in orbit. Yeah, it's yep. in orbit around the sun. Uh, but it's going to be in a kind of a... There's this thing called a Lagrange point, which is where the gravity of the Earth and the Sun kind of cancel each other out, which is about a million kilometres on either side of the Earth, frankly. Mm. And uh, it's going into one of those sort of stable stationary points and it'll communicate back to Earth. And if anything goes wrong, unfortunately, well, there's no going back to fix it. So it's a bit... A lot of space junk to avoid. Oh, God, it's worth the cost so many billions of dollars. It's the big, big thing in astronomy that's coming up. Mm. So, um, yeah. I've just got this idea that I want to run past you. So everything in the universe follows a pattern of laws, laws of physics, laws of nature. The one thing that seems to defy or at least to be capable of defying these rules are humans. Uh, we're not predictable features of the universe. We're not predictable in the same way animals are predictable. Um, and, I mean, like our desire to be an interplanetary species is a good example of this or our ability to blow our entire planet up with nukes because of things like human emotion. Um, and it occurred to me that regardless of anyone's religious or spiritual persuasion, you can't deny the cosmic significance and importance of humans. Humans, And I think our existence is so much more interesting and miraculous than some of the more sort of pessimistic realists give it credit for. What are your thoughts on this? Look, I think you're absolutely correct. That's absolutely right. Because despite the fact... Look, you'd say relatively speaking... Yeah, look, the Earth is smaller than the smallest speck you can imagine, the smallest speck of dust. It's, just, it's kind of physically almost not there at all, right? And humanity, uh, I think, cannot and will never influence the galaxy, let alone the universe, unless Einstein was wrong and so far he's been proven right in every respect. So individually, I think we're totally irrelevant. And one day all mankind, I think, will be destroyed, Okay. <laughs> yet, yet, in this moment of time, as you say correctly, we are extraordinary. We are, our brains and our thoughts, they're more complex and sublime than anything that's out there. We are like gods. We're self-aware, mm. sentient creatures with individual will. How can you compare that to an animate, an inanimate object? I mean, it's a shame we all turn back into inanimate objects. Mm. Uh, our time comes. Um, but our minds take us on journeys to the far end of the universe and back in an instant. And no star or galaxy can do that. You know, 
what could be more exquisite and fabulous than the lives that we've been given? Mm. We're kind of experiencing heaven as it's perceived and it's on earth and we are living it and we are extraordinary. And as I said, we're probably the only, I think we're the only advanced civilization in the galaxy today. But that doesn't matter if there were hundreds or thousands more. We would share that unique and wonderful uh, status. Yeah, we're just like this almost like speck in the universe. That is the only thing with potential to disobey the rules of the universe or to be sort of an influence for change outside the general trajectory of the universe. Mm. Have you seen the uh, recent, in recent months, the news about the UFOs or UAPs as they're now calling them? What do you, if you have seen them, what do you think they are? Oh, look, I don't pay too much uh, attention to stories about UFOs, quite frankly. Um, Even if it's on CNN? (laughs) <laughs> yes, Especially if it's on CNN Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean If I get an alert from, you know, NASA or, you know the, have you seen the ESA, you know, I might pay some attention But it's I'm not going to get that because Have you seen the videos though? They're quite, no, in, but they're quite d- intriguing Okay, so where do these people come from? You know, have they Now the closest star to us is a couple of light years away mm. So you can't travel faster than light You probably can't travel even a tenth as fast as light But let's say you could travel as fast as light So you spend two years coming here First of all, we know that there's probably not other intelligent civilizations in the galaxy mm. And there's hundreds of billions of stars So what's to, it's not going to be the star next to us It's going to, if there is any, it'll be a hundred light years away or two hundred I mean, who would travel for two hundred years, at the, albeit at the speed of light, what civilization would do that to come here of all places? And why would they even come here unless they... Because we're the most interesting thing in the universe, as yeah, we've said, the, Marcus. But the, we've only just been emitting uh, electromagnetic radiation in the form of Lucille mm. Ball movies that have been projected, apparently. That's the first stuff that went up there. So, and that's, it was only about uh, 70, 60 years ago. So the first thing aliens will see will be... Um, you know, reruns of Lucille Ball comedies. I don't know if you know who she is anyway. And and um, and they would have to be within 70 light years. So, you know, anything beyond that doesn't even know we exist. So, well, no, it, it hasn't happened and it's not going to happen in our lifetimes. And it's So if it's not UFOs then, I mean, the mm. I, I actually agree with you. I don't think they are UFOs, but they're something. One of these objects moved 80,000, it descended 80,000 feet uh, in the space of a second. Mm. So mm. what do you reckon it might be a... Weapons program that we don't know about, or I don't know. It's like the Loch Ness monster. Somebody trying to be seen, you know. It's a form of kind of uh, yeah. Look at me. Yeah, it might be just some little flash in the corner of uh, of the uh, a plastic cover of a of an aeroplane window. <laughs> I don't know, you know. But it's not. It's not. It's not aliens. That's for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think we'll ever get to the stage where space travel is accessible to the general public? I think we'll be absolutely. You'll be getting. You'll be flying in space as as much as uh, just as easily as catching a an aeroplane is today. Just as cheap, you think one day or? Yeah, eventually we'll solve the we'll solve the problem of energy. Uh, 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 yeah, I mean it, it will be energy intensive, but we will get to the bottom of it eventually. Mm. Would you be the first to put your hand up if it ever did become accessible? Um, I'd love to. Yes, unfortunately, though, I have a slight panic disorder. I can't stand small spaces, so I don't think I'll go into it. Yeah, I just don't like it, right? But uh, I might be persuaded. I'll just take a few Mogadon and then I'll get in there. Yeah, (laughs) I'd love to see it. I'd love to see it before the end. Valaport into space. Yeah. Uh, Just to finish then, Marcus, uh, 
kind of unrelated question, but quite a good one, I think. What advice would you give to young people? Uh, that's interesting. Um, there's a lot of advice out there, right? Um, I quite like the philosophy of Epicurus. He said, he said that, he said, it dwells on happiness, not that necessarily happiness should be a goal, but let's just talk about that in, this, uh, in terms of this question. We could talk about other goals and ambitions in life. But he did say that in order to be happy, um, there are three conditions precedent that you have to satisfy. Uh, he, didn't, he said that if you satisfy the three pre conditions precedent, you won't necessarily be happy, but unless you do, you don't have a chance, right? So these are the things you've got to do. And to keep it as simple as possible, make friends. Number one, have friends and friendships. He did say try never to eat alone, so that's part of the process. Try and have a meal always with a friend, but have friends and surround yourself with friends. Number two is if you live in a situation where um, something is oppressing you and, it, and it's continuous and it's a burden to you, whether it's a job or it's some other situation, really do your very best to move away from that situation because if so long as you have that oppression there, you won't satisfy condition number two. And precondition number three, and this is an interesting one, and I like this one, it's take the time to always think philosophically about your life and reality. And regardless, don't worry if you remain perplexed and come to no realisations just the mere fact that you take time to think about yourself and your life, uh, to contemplate the world around you, to be somewhat philosophical, it's very important. It's a condition precedent to happiness. And that's, that's the message I'd give. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast, Marcus. It's been good to catch up and, yeah. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for the honour of inviting me. Uh, I appreciate it. I've never, haven't been asked before to do such a thing. So uh, there's a first for everything. 